Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. Um, as most of you know, um, over the last four years, that one of my passions is helping parents uncover an organic basis, um, you know, a physical reason for their children's behaviors and challenges. And today we have something we haven't brought you before. Um, we're going to be discussing another possible cause for your child's struggles, and we are going to be talking about sleep, um, sleep apnea to be more specific, and how it can impact behavior and learning. My guest tonight is Dr. Mark Berhina, and uh, you may know him as Ask the Doctor on Twitter. He is an active member of several continuing education groups and study clubs in prosthetics and periodontic work, and um, he is dedicated to widening dental health education through outreach, volunteering, and public speaking, and when um, you meet him tonight, you're going to be very impressed with everything he's doing, um, really, to make uh, dentistry so much more comfortable, um, and um, you're going to love him. He's currently working on a TEDx talk about using therapy dogs in dental practice, and we'll touch upon that at the end of the interview. Um, But for now, I want to interview Dr. Berhama. Thank you for joining us. Oh, hi, Marianne. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Well, you know, this is something we haven't discussed on the show. Um, And I think, you know, parents may not know about it. And um, if you don't know about it, you really can't address it. And, um, you know, like so many of the things we've found on this show, it could be a cause of of some of, you know, kids struggling. So um, why don't you first tell us what is sleep apnea? Well, sleep apnea is a, uh, a condition that, unfortunately, a lot of people associate negative feelings with. They picture a CPAP. Uh, it's a device that you clamp onto your face at night to sleep with. Um, I, I have people, uh, parents call it a Darth Vader mask. Uh, and uh, so they're very apprehensive about it. It's essentially just a pause in breathing in the middle of the night. You may be in a deep, deep sleep. It's more likely to happen as you get to deeper sleep, uh, the reparative uh, part of our sleep. And all of a sudden, you can't breathe or you have a shallow breath, and that, of course, affects... Um, the sleep itself. In other words, you're, you come out of that deep sleep, you're aroused because your body knows that something is wrong. You may have low uh, blood saturation, uh, oxygen saturation levels. In other words, hypoxia. Um, the body doesn't like it when you stop sleeping. It automatically wakes you up. So it's essentially just a, it's a pause or, or a, a long pause. It could be up to 30, 40, 50 seconds in breathing uh, in adults and in children. Wow, that's a long time. I didn't realize that. Yes, it is. Yep. Wow. You know, I think that there's a myth that um, um, 
sleep apnea is, you know, um, tied into snoring. Um, and some people believe it's a malformation of the palate. So, um, you know, why don't we first talk about some of the causes, and then I want to talk about the symptoms, because parents may not know their child is doing this because the children aren't sleeping with them. Right, exactly. Um, the, well, let's talk about the causes first. Um, the typical causes are, uh, and, and again, this uh, relates to adults. Most people think of it as an adult disease, and we'll talk about that later, how that applies to kids, uh, to children. But it's, it's uh, being overweight, um, gain weight as your BMI increases. Um, a lot of the fat can get deposited into the airway. Um, it can be, uh, you know, inflammation of the airway, tonsils, adenoids, allergies, food allergies, um, can make your airway smaller. Typically, a person who comes in, an adult that comes in with a large neck uh, over a certain uh, a circumference, uh, uh, typically will have um, uh, will have sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea. Um, typically, they're males over females. Although I'm not sure I agree with that statistic. Uh, maybe it's females that are more likely to come in and get treated. Mm-hmm. Um, being over age 40 is a is a definitely a a, a minus. A family history uh, it tends to run in families. Uh, one big one is nasal obstruction, a deviated septum, um, GERD. Uh, uh, you know. Um, kind of uh, bringing up stomach acids, uh, hiatal hernia is, a, is also a cause. Wow, so there are a lot of causes. Um, how often is this seen in children? Is this something that's fairly common or is it pretty rare? Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's, you would think that a child who really has very little of what I just said, except maybe an increased, increased BMIs, we're seeing children you know, gaining weight uh, at, at earlier ages, uh, but children are perceived as being very healthy. You know, that whole, that whole saying, we sleep like a baby. Uh, but that may be a little bit of a misnomer because children probably suffer as likely as adults, um, perhaps for different reasons. But uh, we're finding now that uh, uh, children are these uh, sleep disorder breathing and, and episodes of not breathing at night uh, uh, properly and shallow breathing. And, and, of course, they toss and turn. Right. Right, so this isn't the same as SIDS then. Well, it's related to SIDS. Uh, SIDS is, is an airway disorder, but it's not, uh, uh, I mean, SIDS, you know, that's a more serious condition. Uh, but it right. is an airway airway situation where the airway is compromised and, of course, the child's not breathing. And they don't restart. It, the, the child does not breathe again. So what symptoms could parents look for, um, either when their child is sleeping or when the child is awake? Well, I think here's the problem. I mean, all the symptoms that are listed for obstructive sleep apnea are things like high blood pressure, heart arrhythmias, diabetes, stroke, depression, even Alzheimer's now. Um, one of my favorites is grinding or bruxism, but I'll, I'll get back to that. But those are all things that you get later in life. That, those are the delayed symptoms of having mm-hmm. sleep apnea. And those are diagnosed in adults. Um, so, but with children, it's a little different. And again, let me clarify, as a dentist, I'm not allowed to diagnose sleep apnea. That's something I refer out to sleep MD specialists that uh, uh, specialize in, in sleep apnea and obstructive sleep apnea diseases. And also I work with uh, ENTs, of course, um, and then CPAP specialists. So... But back to your question, the immediate symptoms, and these are the things that I'm, as a dentist, able to really 
pick up on and are important when diagnosing uh, obstructive sleep apnea early are things like lack of focus, difficult paying attention, um, problems listening, forgetfulness, um, disorganization, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, you know, shaking their leg a lot, uh, lack of willpower, they're making bad choices in terms of oral hygiene, they're not brushing at all, they just don't pick up a toothbrush even though they know it's important. And essentially I think of myself as a dentist, that we're on the front line and we know these kids, we've seen them, you know, from day one perhaps, and the, the sleep specialist, the MDs, they see them on a referral they see them maybe once, twice, three times after the sleep study, and that's it. So they don't notice these immediate, what I call immediate symptoms of, uh, of obstructive sleep apnea. The thing that mm-hmm. some of your listeners may have heard just now is that those symptoms are the symptoms of ADHD and ADD. Absolutely. Absolutely, and that's, you know, the scary thing. Um, because, you know, if they don't get something like that under control with um, some type of behavioral therapy, which is usually the front line, you know, the next step would be medication. And, um, you know, you can't medicate sleep apnea with a stimulant. So it's really, you know, it's so important for parents to, um, you know, to look into this. So, you know, you spoke before um, about reparative sleep and um you know i don't i don't think people realize that you know your body heals um and your immune system really um regenerates itself during sleep so what impact does this have on physical health um you know let alone the behavioral um symptoms you just mentioned right um it i don't think it's very clear i mean we have an idea that if you don't get that uh, deep sleep which is from the growth hormone is uh, is released and with kids they're growing with adults they're repairing kids are growing and repairing um, a lot of adults think well I, I'm not getting growth hormone I shouldn't because I'll stop growing growth hormone really is is the uh, elixir of youth and, and longevity and and we should get it in, in a, every 24 hours we should get a good dose of it if you mm-hmm. have a start to sleep apnea chances are you're getting very little of it or, or none of it so to answer your question, the physical changes in kids, I mean, it can affect their growth, certainly. It can stunt their growth. Um, perhaps it can even, and, and this is unclear, but, but there are uh, there is research on this and, and articles on this. Um, it, can, it can affect the development of the child's brain, their neurological development. And, of course, that has implications, you know, later in life. Right. Now, how, what type of evaluation would be done? Like, say you, you see a child that you suspect this, and you send them out um, to an expert, a specialist. Um, would there be sleep studies? Are there monitors? Um, you know, how invasive is it for a parent to have their child checked for this? Well, it's, I don't think it's invasive at all. Typically, if the child is underage, uh, well, let me back up. So when I see the child, uh, you know, I may even just be curious because of a behavioral change. You know, I know the child. I've seen them over the years. And all of a sudden, you know, they're acting, you know, a little different. They're uh, a little distracted. Uh, they're interrupting me. Uh, maybe they're ignoring me, that kind of thing. And, then, of course, I can see the airway. I can do a quick airway check. But one of the big diagnostics for me, and, and it's a little controversial at this point, although organizations like the AADSM, the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine, is, 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 um, is really pushing this um, and, and more research on it. When we see a kid grinding or clenching, the, the term in dentistry is bruxing, bruxism. Mm-hmm. When the child is suffering from bruxism, and we see a lot of excessive wear, wear facets, 
uh, on the teeth. And we should, a dentist should uh, think that they are struggling to keep their airway open at night. That is the, that is one of the, yeah, exactly. So when it's been, we've had many uh, reasons for why people grind, for why adults grind. And and the the current model is it's stress. Um, That's what everybody tells you. Right. Exactly. But really what it may be, and this is perhaps the majority of the reason, and, and in kids, um, and, and why would a child grind? Why would a fetus in utero grind, even though they don't have teeth? Um, it's an instinctual, and perhaps wow. this is the, the explanation, it, it is an instinctual kind of re- reaction to to struggle for air. So based on some brain scans that have been done o- over the last few years, we see the grinding response, the bruxism response in the brain. We know when it, it comes and when it and why it comes. It comes right after the airway is blocked. And after a few seconds, the brain essentially is telling the body to wake up and open that airway, uncollapsing. The, the actual motion of grinding, which involves neck muscles and, and even upper, you know, shoulder muscles, um, and the jaw muscles, of course, uh, it literally, uh, when you go into that grinding mode of clenching, uh, it, and it only lasts for about 10, 15 seconds, it will open and uncollapse the airway and bring the, the patient back. Uh, perhaps in SIDS, that grinding uh, impulse is not strong in the child. Uh, again, this is all kind of... This is really this fascinating. Point. It really is fascinating. And I think the listeners are just going to be floored by this because... Um, so often, you know, the dentist, I've had this said to me about my oldest child, you know, is she struggling at school? Is there any problems at home? You know, because she was a grinder. And, you know, I was like, no, you know, and, and just really adamant about the fact that there must be some underlying stress or something that, you know, is bothering her. Um, right. So that's really incredible because I never looked into this. My husband has sleep apnea. Um, right. So that's interesting, really interesting. Um, so, so, so to answer your question, then... So the dentist really should notice this and, and perhaps make the referral. Then it would, the child would go to, these, uh, to their primary care physician. This is how the system works in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and then the primary care physician, uh, physician has to make the referral to a sleep specialist. Sometimes mm-hmm. at that point, it kind of gets stopped. I mean, the process kind of slows down, and the primary care physician won't make the referral for some reason. Um, and I'm not sure why that is, but I've seen that resistance uh, at that level of, 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 the, of the flow of treatment. When the referral is made, then the child will sleep in a clinic with their parent. It's, it's, a, it's a very nice environment. It's like a little holiday inn with your mm-hmm. own room and a bathroom and a TV. And, and uh, typically the parent and the child will sleep together. But the child is wired up. Uh, it, it's called a polysomnography. Uh, it is a true sleep study. It takes at least one full night. And they really want to make sure that they are measuring uh, brainwave patterns, the uh, the air coming through the airway, and uh, also heart, uh, chest leads for heart, uh, uh, you know, the heart. And sometimes there's a, a lead that goes to the legs to measure, uh, you know, periodic limb movement, rapid leg movement, that kind of thing. And, and then the... They can take a shower there in the morning and go off to school. They can go back home. So it's a very non-invasive test, and especially right. as the parent, especially as the parent is there. 
And, you know, it's, it's so important to rule that out if, you know, your child has any of these other symptoms. Um, now, let, let's go on a little bit to treatments, um, what the treatments would be and how successful are these treatments in um, helping with behaviors and some of the other symptoms that you mentioned. Right. Um, so treatment in terms of children. Yes. It's, it's what you're asking. Um, it's, uh, I, I think the, the first response uh, in the medical community would be, you know, they've, they've hopefully, you know, uh, taken a look at the airway. They can uh, push a camera down there and really check it out, uh, measure it, uh, quantify it. Um, they also have a great direct view of the adenoids, tonsils. And so the first response would be to open up their airway so that when the child is sleeping and the child is relaxing and as they're going into deep sleep and all the muscles around the airway are relaxing, there's a greater chance that that airway is open. And so typically it would be an adenoid tonsillectomy kind of surgery. The irony there is that that surgery was kind of out of favor for many, many years. I think I'm 54 years mm -hmm. old now, and in my day it was a very popular surgery. But then during my, during my um, career as a dentist, I have not seen that be that popular, although now it's coming back, but it's coming back in a, in, for different reasons. It's to maintain that airway. Um, wow. I can okay. treat a child. I think that the next uh, modality of treatment would be uh, keeping the mandible forward, um, by keeping the mandible, let me back up a little bit. So when we go into deep sleep, we our muscles relax. We go into this mildly paralyzed state where only our eyes are moving and our, all our muscles relax, including the muscles around the airway, hence the collapse of the airway. Um, but the muscles that engage the jaw let go as well, and the jaw retrudes, it falls back. When the jaw mm -hmm. falls back, so does the tongue. And the tongue, when it falls back, and of course you're lying down, so the weight of the jaw and the tongue is such that it's falling down towards the back of the throat. And of course that occludes or blocks the airway. Uh, dentists, and we've been doing this for many, many years, um, uh, we can make a device for a child and, and for an adult. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult than a child because they're developing, and we have to kind of wait until the development of the jaw and the teeth has, has come to completion so that we can make this device, otherwise it'll lock them into place. Uh, but typically by age 14, 15, or 17, uh, we can keep their mandible supported and protruded forward, kept forward, even though mm -hmm. it has a tendency to fall back when they, get, when they fall into deep sleep. And that keeps the airway open. That supports the airway. Um, and that's a lower appliance, is that correct? Well, it's an upper and lower appliance. It's, it's like a NICAR. It's like a sports NICAR that a lot of uh, parents are familiar mm -hmm. with. It's a little thinner. But between the it's, – it's two of them, one that covers the upper jaw and the lower jaw. It's very easy to place. The child typically does it on their own. Um, mm -hmm. and, but between the two is, a, is, is like a little McPherson strut assembly or a little block of, uh, of acrylic. or I mean, there are many different methods. But essentially, the two are connected in such a way that when the masseter does let go, the, the chewing muscles that support the jaw, when they do let go as you approach deep sleep, the mandible does not fall back. It's supported. Right. Right. Yeah, my daughter has um, an appliance. It works unbelievably well. Um, you know, I was just, as we, as we were talking, I was just thinking, you know, do you think that possibly, I mean, the increase 
in diagnosis for ADHD is just staggering. I mean, it just cannot be. It cannot be. So do you think that maybe, you know, since you mentioned that environmental factors, allergies could be playing a role, and we know that allergies are increasing a lot because of our diet and, you know, the pollution and everything else, but um, do you think that that could be coinciding with the, is there, with an increase in sleep apnea in children? The, the it's ADHD. Possible. I mean, it's very possible. I mean, uh, well, first of all, we know now uh, that there's strong evidence that children with sleep disorder breathing, uh, they exhibit many of the same symptoms and suffer, actually, some of the behavioral problems uh, that children do that are diagnosed with ADHD. So the question is, is how do we differentiate the two? What comes first? Right. You know, chicken and chicken or egg kind of thing. And of course, it would be wonderful if your child is diagnosed with ADD, typically that comes around age 9 or 12 in school, usually it's a teacher that refers it out, it would be wonderful for the parent. I mean, I know parents don't want to hear that diagnosis, and it has all sorts of implications, and medication is, is a scary thing, especially if you're a child. It would be wonderful, and unfortunately, a lot of I have a lot of parents coming in, jumping the gun, saying, oh, my child has sleep apnea. Uh, you know, last night they, they were very emotional. And so the, the, the crux is, is that, 40 to 60% of kids that have sleep apnea have ADD. So is that the cause wow. of ADD? Wow. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not... It, That's it's, high. It's a multifactorial, well, it's multifactorial, of course, and, and, uh, but is the lack of good deep sleep with growth hormone release, is that, in fact, causing biological, physiological, chemical changes in the brain that can lead to ADD or ADHD or just behavioral issues as a teenager. Um, yeah, they well, have non-restorative sleep can cause so many problems to the nervous system. Oh, it, it's neurologically pretty, I tell my patients, it's pretty much pretty much the cause of everything, almost everything. It, it really is. And I just want to say, you know, I was going over um, last night that your website, which we're going to give the name, um, give out the URL to everybody, but it is a fantastic website. And, oh, um, you. you. know, and it really is. And, um, you know, parents, really, you need to go there because it's so informative on any questions, you, you know, you may have. Um, but some of the things you listed under sleep apnea wasn't even just um, the ADHD distraction, um, learning difficulties, but also anxiety, anxiety and energy. So, you know, it really does have a big impact. Well, I mean, children, teenagers can be very anxious. Um, That whole, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I have a crazy, insane teenager at home. That teenager probably is having a tough time. They are going to sleep, and they're going to sleep later and later. I, I hear a lot of kids telling me indirectly or directly that they don't want to go to sleep because they toss and turn all night. And tossing and turning... Is a, is a difficult thing. Um, you know you're supposed to sleep. Everyone else is asleep. The room is dark, but you're not comfortable. Also, mm-hmm. if you don't, if, if you do have a obstructive sleep disorder, a sleep disorder breathing issue, it's the fight or flight response, the adrenaline, the, the, wow. the sudden, I've seen a grizzly bear uh, kind of feeling uh, um, that, that wakes you up, that saves you from the airway. That's part of the bruxism impulse that's what opens wow. up the airway. So it would affect, yes, it would affect well, the I mean, amygdala then. So it would actually well, affect the brain and your um, well, limbic system. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and imagine, so let's say a child is diagnosed and they have an AHI of 10. So 10 times an hour, they are waking up scared out of their wits. They may, they may be perspiring. Um, they've seen a grizzly bear and they're running. Uh, it's, uh, so that depletes their adrenal gland. During the day, not only are they tired because they didn't sleep, but they don't have that... that uh, 
uh, you know, that fight or flight response in them anymore. I mean, they're, they're a little bit dulled in terms of responding to emergencies or stress or a teacher asking them a question they don't know the answer to in class, uh, that kind of thing. So, so of course, they're going to be anxious. Um, they're, they're nervous and they're frightened. They wake up that way. Um, they're already, uh, when they wake up in the morning, they're already anxious. And that's not what you want for your teenager. Right. This, this is really just turning out to be such a fascinating interview. I mean, oh. I really had no idea when um, I asked you to come on that it was really this involved. Um, well, this, this, it's, thank it's, you. All, this it's is all evolving. Help. It's, it, it's all evolving, and uh, right. um, it's an exciting it's an exciting area because we we now we know we now know more about you know our teenagers, and I think every parent is just dying to know more about why is my teenager acting this way. Right. And, you know, parents are frustrated because, you know, the, the diagnosis and the labels, and listen, I am not um, saying that there aren't children out there with ADHD and mental illness. I mean, there are children suffering terribly. Um, but right. parents will tell you that um, for the children in the, you know, I like to call it the gray area of the palate, um, you know, the, the medications aren't working, the behavioral therapies aren't working, and, you know, right. they, they, they really need to dig deeper. I mean, I, was, I talk often about the fact that some girls um, have endocrine disease, and when you treat the hormonal imbalances, all well, the behaviors stop, which can be very, very drastic behaviors, so it's so important. Right. But um, right. just before, before we end the interview, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you're going to be speaking soon on TED about dog therapy and dentistry. And I'm going to have yes. you back to discuss that. I'd like to do a whole show on that. Um, but I, if you could, I, you know, we, we discussed a few minutes before we went on air about the difficulty parents have, especially with children that have any type of developmental delays um, in going to the dentist. So can you just give us a few tips for special needs parents and then give us your website. And you have Ask the Dentist, so you have to let the listeners know about that too. Right. Well, the website is, is easy to remember. It's askadents.com. Um, in, in terms of special needs children, I mean, I, I really think you should go see, in dentistry, the special needs child is treated by the pediatric dentist. It's usually a referral made. They're set up better to, to handle the special needs child. Um, and every child's different, of course. There's, there's no rubber stamp you know, if your child is autistic, uh, there there isn't one method to to uh, you know take care of the child's oral health needs. Um, uh, so I think the first thing you should do is is as a parent, I would demand a referral to a pediatric dentist. Uh, I think it's a better move uh, for the child. The thing you don't want to do with any child, um, let alone a special needs child, is to make those early dental appointments stressful or or memorable in, in a bad sense, uh, because mm-hmm. that will lead to uh, probably a lifelong, uh, you know, habit of avoidance. And, and of course, right. then that leads to cavities and root canals and, and even more pain. In terms of having a pet or a dog in the office, I have to say that has been, I, I kick myself for not thinking of that sooner. Um, I mean, dogs are helpful in many environments. We've co-evolved alongside with them for you know, 12, 15, 18, 20,000 years. Uh, they are our partners in, in crime and just about everything. I mean, we've, we probably would not be here today, perhaps, uh, or maybe in the, in the position that we are if it wasn't for dogs. And, of course, I could say the same thing for dogs. Uh, we've helped them. But they help us in very subtle ways, uh, behaviorally speaking, psychologically. Uh, they give us a lot of support. Uh, I know dogs that 
escort children to chemotherapy uh, in Palo Alto. Yeah. Um, can you imagine the child having to go to their second and third chemotherapy uh, visit? Uh, this um, They hang on to this big dog, and this dog knows where to go, and it leads them up to the elevator and, and to their to their appointment. Um, uh, there are dogs in the dental environment. I don't see it too often. That's what the TEDx talk is about, something perhaps that needs to be done more. Um, mm-hmm. The dental environment, even though it's a very short-term thing and certainly not life-threatening, and but it's still a very nervous event for people and anxiety-producing. So we have a little uh, Havanese. Uh, he was a rescue, uh, which is always nice if you can rescue a dog. Um, those dogs suffer anxiety as well and great have dogs. issues. Oh, yeah. it is. And he's very clean. He's uh, hypoallergenic. Um, he's he's very trainable. We've trained him basically to sit in the corner in his little donut there in each operatory. He's he follows me around, and when he's mm-hmm. needed, I can he's he, I can literally just pick him up with one hand, or the assistant will pick him up, and we place him in the child's lap. And from that point on, the whole appointment becomes a, a completely different ballgame. I've tried to use TVs and television shows and Disney Channel and video games, and, and by far the dog is uh, the most effective tool that me as a dentist, uh, that any dentist could ever think of using uh, to have the child want to come back in, to motivate the child, to calm the child, and to make the child actually listen to, you know, what I'm, what we're trying to get through to them, you know, like oral hygiene right. habits and, and that kind of thing. So... So the, having a dog in the dental environment is, is really something that uh, we should really be uh, seeing, seeing more of. Well, Dr. Hanna, you really are a trailblazer. I mean that seriously. Oh, I mean this, um, you know, I'm looking forward to your talk. I'm looking forward to you having back and having you come back. And I want everyone to um, go to askthedentist.com. Just go to this website because whether it's using a sippy cup um, for your toddler or wisdom teeth for your teens or for yourself, whitening, whatever it is about dental health that you're looking for, um, Dr. Berhenna has it on his site. It's a fantastic site. There's an Ask Dr. B section where you can ask him questions and interact. You can follow him um, on Twitter, Ask the Dentist. He's very approachable. And um, I want to thank you very much for this interview. Oh, thank you, Rianne. I, I love talking about it, and I enjoyed the show. Thank you. Now, you um, also, just like, before we go, you also do public sure. speaking. Is there someplace people can find where they can go see you? Do you have that up well, on your website um, yet? I don't. There are some CNN interviews. Of course, there will be the TEDx talk. I hope to do more of those. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, that, that'll, be, that'll be on the website soon. Uh, we're okay. Terrific. We're trying to trying to collate all that and get it on to the... And I'm sure you'll be tweeting it, too. So, Um, again, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for the time, Marianne. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, Our next show is going to be actually two hosts as the guests, me being one of them, and um, Stephanie Weiss um, is going to be on. And we are going to be discussing choosing the right um, mental health care practitioner for your child because it's not as easy as you think. It's not by going with, you know, the person who may be the best of the best. It's who suits your child and who suits your family. And we're going to go into a really in-depth interview on helping parents find the right um, doctor for their child. So as I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent with us at The Coffee Clatch. You can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.